On this podcast, we will seek to examine the stories, technology, history, and ideas that define mankind. We hope that you will join us on this journey as we quest for what makes us human. Hi, I'm J.R. Parks. And I'm John Lindemann. Welcome to episode 7 of What Makes Us Human. 7. Absolutely. So, for episode 7, we're going to be talking about Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles, ICBMs. I was going to say, a.k.a. ICBM. Now, before we get into this, how do you pronounce nuclear, nuclear... Oh, we got to do this. <laughs> well, okay, so George W. Bush um, was famous for saying, for saying nuke, nuclear. I can't hardly do it. Nuclear is what I've always said, but he was famous for saying nuclear, I think. Yeah, nu- nuclear. I think nuclear maybe is, is just based on how it's spelled, maybe a more correct pronunciation. Okay. But I always pronounce it nuclear. Yeah, you know, nuclear. It yeah. feels like you're adding some extra vowels when you say it that way. Yeah, but yeah. That's all right. So. And whose idea was this? Whose idea was this topic? Yes. It was mine. And this was brutal. It was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of information. There's a bunch of information in this one. So, so John, you were a Cold War kid, right? I was born in 76. Okay. So you grew up right in the middle of, sort of the tail end of the Cold War, but... Tear down this wall. Yep. So what, what, what does the Cold War mean to you as someone who kind of grew up on, in, in right, kind of right in the middle of it? Okay. The Cold War means to me, um, it was an era where you sat down. I would sit down on our 1970s style couch. I was born in 76, but you know, this is what I remember is from the early 80s. Yeah. With my supper in my lap and my sweet tea sitting at my foot. My mom would tell me, don't knock that over. <laughs> and uh, she would turn on the television to one of the three channels okay. on the VHF, not the UHF, sure. the two knobs. And uh, the news would come on, and Peter Jennings or uh, Dan Rather, Dan Rather would tell us what was wrong in the world, okay. and it involved Reagan, and at that point Gorbachev, All right. or Gorbachev, the guy with the big red stain on the top of his head. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the Cold War, it's the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Um, there were certainly nuclear weapons involved. It's kind of called a cold war because it it never turned hot. It never became an active fighting war, although sort of did by proxy in a couple of Asian countries. But yeah. that's, that's a topic for another episode. Yeah, we can't take any more information on this one. So, so this falls ICBMs fall right in the middle of the cold war. Like this is this was a big focus in the cold war. I, for me, the cold war is more of a historical. Oh, nice. Because, because what year were you born? 90. Whew! So, what, 91? Was it 91 the USSR broke up? Hmm. Somewhere right in there. So, it's, uh, yeah, the, the Cold War is, is, is a historical event uh, for me. But, so... So, let's say what ICBM one more time stands for. Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles. Yep. So... You know, the idea being, of course, that they can go between continents. They can go over oceans and strike targets. Yeah, I think the minimum distance for an ICBM is like 3,400 miles. Yeah, I think I did see that. Yeah, so these puppies are traveling. Sure. Yeah. So, just for a little more backstory, 
this all sort of started with the V2 rockets with the Germans in World War II. Um, these were a liquid-fueled rocket designed by Warner von Braun and his team. Warner von Braun. Yep. Okay. Sounds like a shaver. Mm, I think Braun is a razor. Oh, it is, but that, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Nazi Germany used these from mid-1944 until March of 1945 to bomb... Uh, Mostly British and Belgian cities, kind of focusing on Antwerp and, and London. Okay, now so, were these coming coming off of a the back of one of these trucks, or these flat trailers like you may picture from the Soviet Union, or were these in the ground being launched from I, silos, sort of? I, I don't know that they were mobile. Okay. But okay. I also don't know that they were in the ground. They were just ground-based launchers, okay. All right. not necessarily in silos. Gotcha. So... After the, US, after the war, the U.S. Uh, executed something called Operation Paperclip, where they basically kind of whitewashed some of these scientists' involvement, including von Braun, some of their involvement with, with Germany's missile program, and brought them to the U.S. to develop, among other things, ICBMs and the launchers needed for the U.S. military. So did they bring von Braun here to America? Yes. Okay. And hundreds of other German scientists who were involved in so, with with ICBMs, the there's kind of three flight phases that, that make up an ICBM. Uh, the boost phase, which which lasts about three to five minutes, and it's a little shorter if it's a solid fuel rocket. We'll we'll kind of get into some of that then for liquid propellant. And um, the altitude at the end of this phase is. 93 to 249 miles so you know can can be up to space at the end of the boost phase or, or right there at it but um that's that's the kind of the initial kickoff the mid course phase is number two takes approximately 25 minutes this is suborbital space flight so this thing is in space yeah during phase two and no power is kind of in free flight right uh, yeah, sort of yes it, it and depending on the depending on the target and the, and how far it's going, it may still be inside the atmosphere. You know, like I said, that, that initial phase can go from ninety three to two hundred forty nine miles, you know, above the Earth's surface. So they can be within the Earth's atmosphere, but they are. It is a it's a space flight, and um, at the end of the mid course phase. Um, starts the re-entry terminal phase where it releases one or sometimes several independent warheads and uh, and sometimes other penetration aids. Um, we'll get into some of the uh, defense systems that, that came up for these ICBMs, but uh, you know they could release things like metal-coated balloons and pieces of aluminum and even full-scale decoy warheads. Um, to try to fool these systems so, so the warhead has a, a good chance of making it. So that's the third phase as it, you know, as one or more of these warheads go towards their target. So that's, that's an ICBM. And in the Soviet Union, early development was focused on missiles that could attack European targets. You know, these are short, shorter range. Right. These would be more like the actual V2s. Yep. Uh, but in 1953, that changed when Sergei Korolov 
was directed to start development of a true ICBM able to develop the newly developed, able to deliver the newly developed hydrogen bombs. Sergey or Sergey? Sergey. Oh, okay. I'll go with Sergey. If he was Sergi, he got he had a hard time in high school, probably. Terrible with names. Okay, we'll go with Sergey. Sergey. There okay. you go. So the first successful test of a ICBM in the Soviet Union was on August twenty first, nineteen fifty seven. This is the R seven missile, and it flew over thirty seven hundred miles. And from then, the, the first strategic missile unit, military unit became operational on the 9th of February, 1959, in Northwest Russia. So there's a lot of overlap. The other thing, what was the other thing that was really big focus during, uh, during the Cold War between the two countries? There was, a, there was a missile race, but there was another race. The space race. Right. So you, you're going to see both countries using these, these rockets that they're delivering to also you know, power the space race. So the same R-7 launch vehicle placed Sputnik into space, the first artificial satellite, on the 4th of October, 1957. And the first human space flight in history was also accomplished on derivative of the R-7. And in fact, a modernized version of the R-7 is still used to this day oh. as the launch vehicle for the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. Is Sputnik what uh, Laika no, went up in? No, Sputnik was a very small. I mean, Sputnik was like the size of a. I think it was like the size of a, a volleyball or something. It was a very small satellite. Oh, it was, okay. It was a big deal because it was the first man-made satellite. So Laika was probably after that. Yes. Okay. The Laika for our listeners is the dog that they got off the streets of Moscow and then put her in to orbit, and she passed away. And then they brought her back. And now there's a statue to this poor dead dog in Moscow. Yep. That you can go look at if that's what you do when you go to Moscow. Yep. So this R7 vehicle and, and the various derivatives of it is you know, still in use 60 years later. Wow. Um, you know, the Soyuz capsules are still used to take astronauts to the International Space Station. Ah, okay. So this is you know, very much still in use. Also, wouldn't you like to be the astronaut flying on a rocket that was designed in the 1960s? <laughs> Incorrect. Negative Ghost Rider. Now, is the Soyuz, so is the Soyuz an ICBM? I mean, by definition of being an intercontinental ballistic missile, I, it, I mean, it's certainly not, it's, it's not, it's not being fired at earthbound targets. Right, okay. Space. It's the same rocket technology. Gotcha, okay. So the U.S. initiated ICBM research in 1946 with the RTV-A-2 Hyrock project. And like a lot of things with the space race up until the point that the U.S. landed on the moon, the U.S. was kind of behind the eight ball. Right. They were always reacting to, oh, pressure's way ahead of us. Yep. And part of this was when this initial research happens, you have like all three branches of the military at the time doing their own research. Whereas the Soviet Union kind of had one focused group, um, there was a lot of duplicate work happening in the U.S. by right. different branches. So it's best if we can put our heads together. Yeah. And the other part of that is the 
newly forming U.S. Air Force didn't really take the development of the ICBM seriously. They had overwhelming air superiority to the Soviet Union, and they had truly intercontinental bombers. Right. So, so B-52? Would have been by then, yes. Okay. So in their mind, you know, these aren't as important because if we need to drop a nuke on a Russian city, we'll just send a bomber or a fleet of bombers. But these, these views began to change a little bit in 1953 with the Soviet testing of their first thermonuclear weapon. Uh, and in 1954, the Atlas Missile Program was given the highest national priority. The first successful flight of an Atlas missile to full range occurred on the 28th of November, 1958. And again, I, we won't get into the details there, but again, this rocket technology that the U.S. is developing was also being used by NASA in the space race. So I have a, uh, some information on this uh in July of 1954, um, Bernard Shriver, who was with the uh, Army's Air Force Division, is put in charge of the Special Project Office on the West Coast, and they narrowed that name down to the Western Development Division. Okay. And they put him in a small, run-down, abandoned, whitewashed, cinder-block is that enough adjectives? Schoolhouse in the Inglewood neighborhood of L.A. Okay. to develop ICBM technology. All right. So they put a guard at the front door. They locked every other door, and they spray-painted the windows with the, that frosting spray paint you can yeah. get, like for your bathroom window. Yeah. Um, they frosted all the windows and then put bars on them. And they got in there and began to, to tidy up uh, what would end up being the United States version of ICBM <laughs> technology. Yes, again, obviously not a very high priority at that stage <laughs> if they're just sticking this guy in an old schoolhouse. and With you know, ten other men. Yeah, here, have at it. Yeah. So, the R-7 in the Soviet Union and the Atlas in the U.S. each required a large launch facility. This made them vulnerable to attack. And they couldn't be kept in a ready state because they required liquid fuel. Yep. So, aside from the high failure rates in these early years, was also the problem of, you know, if, if an attack happened or if they found an attack fixing to happen, it would take a very long time to, you know, load the fuel in this. In this 30 device. minutes. Yes. And, uh, and then launch it. So... And when Sergi has pushed the button in Russia, and then you have to wait 30 minutes, that's an old crap moment, yeah. you know? And so this is the point where the U.S. And, and the Soviet Union, but the U.S. kind of had a jump here, began experimenting with solid rocket fuel technology. And the end result was the Minuteman series of ICBMs. So the Minuteman series is kind of where I'm going to spend uh, a good bit of, of time talking about the development of the different ones. But there, we did we do jump a few developments to get to that point. Now, can I uh, let's talk for a minute about what pushed us over the edge sure. to uh, solid propellant versus the, from the liquid propellant that takes thirty minutes to deploy and mix and everything. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit of history here, real quick. Um, April 17th to April 20th of 1961 is the famous disastrous failed landing operation 
in southwest Cuba at the Bay of Pigs. Okay. Um, Cuban exiles, which opposed uh, the Castro-Cuban revolution, um, it does not work out. Uh, a little history on that. In 1952, General Fulgencio Batista forces President Carlos Prio out of power in Cuba, and uh, Carlos Prio is exiled to the terrible town of Miami, Florida. <laughs> um, this inspires Castro's 26th of July movement against Batista. The U.S. bristles all over itself, does the Bay of Pigs invasion, does not work out. The reason I bring that up is this gets Cuba all bristled. Mm -hmm. um, just looking our direction like, okay, so we're a target, yeah. you know. Um, the very next year is the Cuban Missile Crisis from October 16th to October 28th, 1962, mm -hmm. where we basically go eyeball to eyeball with weapons of mass destruction aimed at one another. Once the Cuban Missile Crisis is over under Kennedy, and during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis also, uh, it becomes very apparent that we're in a bad situation because we're facing Soviets who have nuclear weapons stationed in Cuba, hundred miles from the Florida coast, while the United States has nuclear missiles that they would use stationed in Turkey. Yeah, and this thirty-minute window for the liquid fuel is a huge problem. Sure. So the Cuban, the Bay of Pigs, which for which then changes uh, the way we look at each other forever, and then the Cuban Missile Crisis, which just solidifies the way Cuba and the U.S. are dealing with one another. This totally changes us into a solid fuel-based system that you end up seeing with the Miniman. Sure, and also, I mean, solid fuel is safer in storage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely the big part, big driving factor was, okay, these things can be stored, ready to go. The LGM-30A Miniman 1 was first test-fired on the 1st of February, 1961 at Cape Canaveral. And it entered into Strategic Air Command's arsenal in 1962. But after the first batch of Minutemen uh, rocket Minutemen 1s were fully developed and ready for stationing, uh, the, the U.S. Air Force had originally decided to put these missiles at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. But before they were set to be moved, it was discovered that there was a defect in these first set of Minutemen. Uh, ICBMs. That's not good. Which limited their range from their initial 6,300 miles to 4,300 miles. That's not good. So they could not station them in California and still get them over the North Pole to hit Russian cities in, with the shorter range. So the decision was made to station them at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana instead. Ah. They were still where they were within the 4,300 okay. miles to reach their targets. So even with their defective boosters, by moving them to Montana, they were able to reach their intended targets in the event of a launch. Of course, this led to the improved LGM-30B Minutemen 1s uh, that did not have this defective booster. And they became operational at Ellsworth Air Force Base, South Dakota, Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota, F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming, and... Whitman Air Force Base in Missouri in 1963 and 1964. There are some really cool videos on uh, F.E. Warren, um, which is right there at Cheyenne, mm -hmm. uh, and then Minot uh, 
there's some good videos on YouTube that you can watch where they basically give you the full tour um, of the entire, which I was kind of surprised about, to be honest with you. Yeah. But anyway. Well, a, a lot of what we're talking about by the time we get to the end of this has become obsolete. So they can talk about it because oh, yeah. it doesn't matter anymore. So all 800 Minutemen 1 missiles were delivered by June of 1965. Each of these bases had 150 missiles in place. The, the Minutemen 1's length varied based on which variation, but the 1A had a length of 53 feet and 8 inches, and the 1B had a length of 55 feet and 11 inches. That's how tall they are, if yeah. you stood them up? Yeah. Wow. The Minutemen 1 weighed roughly 65,000 pounds and had an operational range of 5,500 miles with an accuracy within a mile and a half. That is crazy. So these were definitely, with the accuracy, they were still, I mean, a mile and a half is pretty impressive, but they were definitely designed to take out cities as opposed to small right. direct targets yeah. with, with this level of accuracy. So the Minutemen 1 Autonetics D-17 flight computer that was on board these devices used hard disk drives, similar to what you know most personal computers use today. Oh, okay. Not the solid states that, that things are moving to, but the hard drives that computers have had for 30 years or whatever. This was a big step forward from the previous generation of rockets because the previous ones had these orders hard-coded into the computer on board. So if you needed to make a change, like change the launch orders and aim it somewhere else, it was very difficult and time-consuming to change to make a change to the launch orders. With this, hard, with this new flight computer using these hard disks, they could plug one single cable in and make a change in, I believe it was about a minute. Okay. They could change the, the targeting. At its introduction into service in 1962, the Minuteman 1 was fitted with a W9 or W59 warhead that had a yield of one megaton. And production of the W56 warhead with the 1.2 megaton yield began in March of 1963. You know, these are compared to the bombs that were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, these are you know multitudes over. Okay. You know, larger warheads. But the Minutemen 1 was certainly not the last. Um, the LGM-30F Minutemen 2 was an improved version of the Minutemen 1 missile. Development on the Minutemen 2 began in 1962 as the Minutemen 1 was entering uh, Strategic Air Command SAC's nuclear arsenal. Okay. So as they're getting Minutemen 1s, development started on Minutemen 2s. That's kind of how this whole thing is going to go. Deployment began in 1965 and completed in 1967. It had an increased range, greater throw weight, and a better guidance system. Some of these also contained penetration aids, allowing the higher probability of kill against the anti-ballistic missile systems that Moscow was developing. So they throw out, like we said earlier, dummy warheads, pieces of aluminum, other things for these defense systems to catch instead of the warhead. Right. The Minuteman 2 had a length of 57 feet, 7 inches, and weighed roughly 73,000 pounds. Had an operational range of 7,000 miles with an accuracy within one mile. Wow. So definitely you know, improving. Before we kind of get into some of the other details on the Minuteman 2, I have a family member who worked 
uh, putting the Minutemen twos in the side in missile silos out west because that's kind of how these ICBMs were were stationed. You know, with the, starting with the Minutemen one, uh, but definitely into the Minutemen two, they spread these things out to a lot of silos, kind of all over the country. Right. With the idea being, it's you know more targets. Um, if they take some out, there's others still able to respond. So I had a family member who worked putting the Minutemen two ICBMs in silos out west. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he worked kind of in the construction side of things, but he said uh, they had someone bring a video of a. It was a surveillance video from a reconnaissance uh, plane that had flown over part of Russia. No. Oh. And they were showing you know by working that day this video, and in this video. You can see it's it's a Russian missile base, and you can see they're they're test firing okay. uh, an ICBM. And he said in the video, you see this thing lift off, and it's kind of coming straight up, at, you know, kind of towards the camera, kind of that direction, you know. It's just, and it gets up in the air. It does a belly flop. Oh no. It starts going right back down to the ground. And he said, you see everyone, you know, scatter for the blockhouse, for the bunker. And lands, and the smoke clears, there's no bunker. It just wiped out everything on the ground. Just killed everybody? Yeah. Wow. Presumably. I mean, high-altitude high surveillance video. Wow. He said, when the smoke cleared, there was no bunker. Bad day. So, so this is just a dummy bomb. Yeah, it wasn't, okay. yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't it didn't level an entire they city. Just, they were just testing the, the wow. ICBM itself, but there was enough, you know, with, I guess with the fuel and everything else, mm. it was enough to wipe out that launch site essentially. Mm. So, so the the major new features provided by the Minutemen Two were uh, an improved first stage motor that improved reliability, a novel. Single fixed nozzle with liquid injection thrust vector control on the second stage motor. This increased the missile range. We said you know it had a range of seven thousand miles, and an improved guidance system, the D thirty seven flight computer. This computer incorporated microchips as well as miniaturized um, electronic parts, and it was the first. Minimum two was the first program to make a major commitment to these new microchips, this new hardware that would become the backbone of. You know, our computer age. The other system that had the same kind of requirements was, you know, NASA. NASA, you know, had the same requirements for these microchips. So between NASA and the ICBM program, they essentially gave rise to the integrated circuits that gave us, you know, our modern computers. Okay. So penetration, they had penetration aids. Uh, that helped camouflage the warhead as well as um, reducing radar signature. Uh, for this is one reason why the the uh, the warhead was no longer made of titanium to make it less susceptible to being picked up on radar. Okay. And it was a larger warhead on on, on this particular. So that's that's essentially the Minutemen Two. Um, now, what year are we at? Sixty-two. So the, the Minutemen Two's 
com deployment was completed in 1967. Oh, okay. So, but in 1966, progress was beginning to be made on the LGM-30G Minutemen 3 program. These include several improvements over the previous versions and it was first deployed in 1970. Okay. Uh, most of these modifications related to the final stage in the reentry system. Again, they're just continually improving these things to try to minimize the chance that these defense systems that the Soviet Union is developing could actually stop the warheads from hitting their target. The other thing that Minutemen 3 came with was it could be armed with up to three W62 MK-12 warheads. Warheads, yep. So they only had a yield of 170 kilotons but there was three of them as opposed to one. one. So this thing could go up in the air get into space, focus on a target, come down, and then deploy three different, yep. on the three different targets? Yes. Okay, so now, did we do that because the Soviets figured out how to do that? We did that, for one, it allows you to have fewer ICBMs to hit more targets, but it also increased the probability, if you have three warheads going at something that has a defense system, it increases the probability that oh, one will make it through. Right, true. So this is the first multiple independently targetable reentry vehicles, or MIRV, system. Uh, a single missile was able to launch, able to target three different locations. In addition to that, there were several other uh, improvements made with the uh, second stage and the third stage to, to give increased range. And the flight computer had, the, this time, the Autonetics D-37D had a larger disk memory and enhanced capability. And, and the Minutemen 3s are what we still have today. So they've been upgraded, they've been tweaked, but these things were you know, first brought online in 1970, and it's still what we're using today. They're 51 years old. For a number of reasons. And part of that improvement was the Guidance Replacement Program was initiated in 1993 to replace the flight computer with a new one that used radiation-resistant semiconductor RAM, random access memory. Okay. So similar to what your computer uses for, for memory, um, a little more hardened as a military service. The next problem that the U.S. recognized is that they had a thousand of these ICBMs, so you know, Soviet Union would have to target a thousand of these things, which means they'd have to have a thousand of these things. But they only had a hundred launch and control centers, so they could, in theory, the Soviets could, rather than have to target all 1,000 of these missiles, they could just target the 100 launch control centers. This gives birth to the airborne launch control system. Essentially, you had airborne missilers, missilers standing alert on these aircraft flying around the globe 24-7, 365, that were able to send commands to these ICBMs to be launched. So you no longer had to rely on the 100 ground-based launching control systems. They could still be used, but if they were taken out, 
you had people in airplanes constantly flying around the globe who could also send these things off in the event of a, a retaliatory, you know, they need to retaliate against a strike by the Soviet Union. And time period here is? This was also the 1970s. Um, it, some of these improvements uh, also were made in the Reagan administration in the 80s. But, okay. Um, the, the airborne launch control system first came online in the 70s. Okay. And they still have a similar system. Uh, the ACLS is now operated by airborne missileers as well as being on board the U.S. Navy's E-6B Mercury. So they must be pretty confident that someone can't find this submarine and sink it if they're willing to publish the name of the submarine <laughs> where these controls are. I thought they're just lying. Right. Sink this one, it's a decoy. But the ACLS crew is integrated into the battle staff of uh, U.S. Strategic Command, U.S. STRATCOM, and is on alert around the clock. Wow. Even to this day. The, the next thing that came up in the 1970s was the Navy began to, uh, they had continued to work on their own versions, and their versions were submarine launched. Right. There's some pretty cool pictures of that. Yeah. So they, they, they the first development they came up with was the Poseidon, and then the Trident 1, and, and now we're to the Trident 2s. We won't get into these a whole lot other than to say that this began to cause people to question the need for the land-based right yeah yep if this can be these can be launched off of these submarines that already exist then why do we need all of these so today with this shift we have now a, a total of 450 of these placed around a few different air force bases and most of these silos these former launch silos out west have been shut down in some cases sold to individuals in the private sector you know, you see, occasionally you'll see, you know, you can go out to YouTube videos, people who bought these silos and turned them into bunkers or, you know, whatever for their own personal use. But this was hardly the end of the military's um, development of these ICBMs. The LGM-118 Peacekeeper, originally known as the MX for Missile Experimental, was a, a MERV capable, so again, multiple warhead capable ICBM that was produced and deployed by the United States from 1985 to 2005. Now, this is the one that had so much controversy out there in Cheyenne at uh, F.E. Warren Air Base. Mm -hmm. Huge amount of controversy. Both sides showed up to pick it. Uh, most of Cheyenne saw it as uh, a job opportunity. Uh, most of the town felt that the industry that ran the town was the military. Um, there was a big deal with Reagan about the MX. I believe the MX would do 10 warheads at once. Actually 12. Wow, okay. But with all of the various START agreements and the other weapons agreements that the US and Soviet Union began to sign starting you know, in the 80s, they were treaty limited to 10. So okay. they could actually hold 12, but they were treaty limited to 10. Gotcha. Each one, a 300 kiloton W87 warhead, so 10 of those. Wow. Initially, the plan was to build a 100 of these things and deploy them, but budgetary concerns and the questions about 
do we really need all of these with the Trident system and all those things? Only 50 entered service. And disarmament treaties signed after Peacekeeper's development uh, resulted in its eventual withdrawal from service in 2005. Five, yeah. So the weird thing about this is the newer rockets, the newer ICBMs, were dismantled by treaty, and we're still using the ones from 1970. Nice. Few, fewer of them, but we're using them as opposed to the ones from 1985. You're right. So, the Peacekeeper rockets were converted uh, to the satellite launcher role by Orbital Sciences as the Minotaur Four, and warheads were redeployed on existing Minutemen Three missiles. So part of this was reused, also re, part of these uh, missile systems were also reused in the Ares 1X test for the Constellation program. So, oh, okay. Um, in some cases, NASA, in other cases, private individuals, private organizations um, used these uh, in their own space race, essentially, in their own attempts to bring things and people to space. So right now we have. 450 of these 50-year-old ICBMs on the ground. Uh, request for a proposal for development and maintenance of a ground-based strategic deterrent next-generation ICBM. Isn't that a mouthful? That's a mouthful. Was made by the U.S. Air Force Nuclear Weapons Center on July 29th, 2016. So this new system would replace the Minutemen 3 in the land-based portion of the U.S. nuclear triad. So we didn't really get into the nuclear triad. Right. Essentially, you have the ICBMs, the submarine-launched nukes, and the bomber The bomber, yeah. Nukes. So that's the, the three legs of the triad. Uh, the new missile is to be phased in over a decade from the late 2020s um, and are expected to have a 50-year life cycle. On the 14th of December 2019, it was announced that Northrop Grumman had won the competition to build the future ICBM, but Northrop won by default because Boeing was the only other person bidding and they dropped out. They dropped out, yep. So the Pentagon hopes to have new upgraded nuclear-armed ICBMs operational by 2029 that include improved targeting, guidance technology, and resilience against enemy attacks and intercepts. So that is ICBMs in a nutshell because there's a lot of detail you can get into on on um, all of this but this episode's already run long so so if we uh, if we end up totally going away from ICBM the silo style uh, then there will be a lot more pressure on the bomber end is that not right yeah but I don't know if there's any plan to do away with them. They're just saying okay. they want new ICBMs. They okay. keep ICBMs as one of the three options. They just And that's through like twenty seventy or something? It is uh through well it's a fifty year life cycle starting okay. in twenty twenty nine, so that'll be twenty seventy nine. Okay. I hate to have to do math on the fly. <laughs> even easy math. So but anything you want to add with ICBMs? Yeah. Um you have a lot of note cards, so... Uh, well, to maybe go away from my note cards a little bit, I did this last time, and I kind of like <clears throat> wrapping up with it. You know, what about the intercontinental ballistic missile makes us human? 
I kind of thought as far as humanity goes, you know, to sometimes it's good to, have you ever had company over and, you know, somebody says, we're about 20 minutes out, we're looking forward to seeing you. And you hang up the phone and you turn around and you look at your living room and you're like, we got to clean the house. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you see it from a different angle. Yeah. Um, imagine us finding extraterrestrial life okay. and we find it in such a way where we can really observe it. Okay. And which is kind of impossible because when you look at deep into space, you're looking back in time. But anyway, um, and, and we begin to notice that these extraterrestrials, they make great advances, but they only seem to make great advances when they try to kill each other. Okay. It's really, it's kind of disheartening. Hmm. Um, it's, it seems like we, we do our, we're at our best when we're also at our worst. You know, the result of our worst kind of makes us at our best. And without warfare, it makes kind of makes you wonder where would we be? We'd probably be um, hundreds of years further back technologically uh, if if we weren't trying to kill each other all the time. The idea of, yeah, the idea of warfare bringing advances in technology and medicine and yeah. you know, a host of other things. Sure. It's kind of like a family that only takes a really great vacation after the night before they almost all killed each other. Hmm, okay. You know? Yeah. It's kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that came to me, because I, I kind of figured you were going to bring this up, was just the idea that we're, we're so far into the nuclear age mm -hmm. with multiple countries having ICBMs now, if not just two. And we haven't destroyed ourselves. Right. And in fact, we've had them for so long that unlike in the heart of the Cold War when they're doing air raid drills and all these other things, we don't think about it. No, we don't. This is, this is the sword of Damocles hanging over our heads, but it's been there so long we've forgotten it's there. Which is a little fascinating to me. That's, maybe it's a coping mechanism that mankind has because you can't just constantly live in terror that you know the world is going to be destroyed. So maybe it's some sort of coping mechanism that, that we've developed. But yeah, it's the sword of Damocles is hanging over our heads and we've forgotten it's there. It's interesting because my mother was uh, born in 46. And in speaking with her about this kind of thing, uh, she has said in the past... I haven't talked with her about ICBM since we've, uh, we haven't talked about the podcast since you picked this topic, but in the past she has said that uh, when she was a child, they hid under their desks yeah. because of the bomb, Yeah. you know, and now she said it's really interesting that they hide under the desk because of each other, mm. the, the child that may be in the hallway with a gun or something, you know, um, so it's, now our, our kids don't think about North Korea launching a nuclear weapon at us, which is they're actually capable of doing. You know, now our kids are worried about the other kids. Yeah, it, uh, that's a whole nother. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I always thought the, always thought the whole, you know, under under your desk in the air raid drill thing, was a little funny. It's like wearing a helmet when you parachute. Yeah, I mean, if they. If a nuke drops anywhere near your school, you being under that desk isn't going to help. No. Mm -mm. But, 
Um, yeah, it's uh, it it's it's certainly interesting, but I, yeah, it's I find it fascinating one that we've managed to go this long and not destroy each other, but two that in in the result we've as a result we've kind of forgotten it's there. So. Now, what are we gonna do? What are we going to do with these things? Eventually, do they blow them up underwater? I mean, in 70 more years, when these things are 120 years old, yeah. eventually they're going to have to be detonated. What do we, how do we handle that? Maybe by 70 years they can figure a way to launch them towards the sun or something. You know, have, them, <laughs> have them explode so, in so space. far out in space that that doesn't matter. I don't know. Okay. Because I know there's a big debate on what to do with nuclear waste. Yeah. Yeah, and how do we tell people 800 years from now, you know... They're working on that. I forget who's working on that, but there is a project on developing how do you make a sign when every language that we use is defunct yeah. to say, stay away from this Don't area. Don't open this barrel. Right. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> right. Yeah, certainly, certainly interesting thought. So, anything else? That's it. Episode seven. Lots of math, lots of, lots of uh, letters and numbers. Military abbreviation, yeah. all kinds of fun stuff, yeah. A lot of information. So, well, thank you, folks, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you'd leave us a review on a, whichever podcast platform you are listening to, that's a great way to help folks find this show. Also, if you just share this episode with somebody who you think uh, might might enjoy it, so uh, you can also reach out to us by email wmuhpodcast at gmail and you can find us on social media at wmuhpodcast. Thank you for joining us, folks, and we'll see you next week. See ya.